this is Your Bird Story, a broadcast of bird stories told by everyday people about their interactions and relationships with wild birds in cities. I'm your host, Georgia Silvera Simeons. Welcome to another episode of Your Bird Story. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Katie Tannis. She is an illustrator, an animal lover, and I'm going to pass the mic to Katie to have her make more detailed introduction to herself. Hi, I'm Katie. I'm an illustrator primarily for children's products, mostly books and games and puzzles. I started in fashion. I did children's fashion for a long time. I'm also an author of children's books. And then I am currently finishing up a master's in biology through Miami University and a partnership with the Bronx Zoo. Oh, so could you talk a little bit more about that? Is the Bronx Zoo partnership a typical offering through the biology masters? Yeah. So through Miami University has this program called Project Dragonfly, and they do partnerships with multiple zoos in the country. So all of the like core classes are online. And then you have these in-person classes that are specialized at each of the like zoo or botanical garden locations. I know San Diego Zoo is another one. They have a few in Ohio. It's just out of that program that I'm doing that. Okay. And what particularly are you focusing on at the zoo? It's been like a bit of a weird (laughs) master's because it happened during the pandemic. So a lot of the stuff that should have been in person ended up being remote. So for example, like one of the classes I was really excited to take was a animal behavior class. But since we couldn't go to the zoo and observe animals during the semester that I was going to take that, I ended up not taking that course. I did an internship as an independent study with the Bronx Zoo with the exhibit and graphic arts department, which was a little bit about storytelling and design which I feel like ties into my interests. So that was really interesting to me. There's a lot of teachers in the program. So there's a focus on informal science education through zoos and stuff like that. It's really a mix of, you know, you can choose your electives that make sense to you. And I think the zoo mostly serves as a meeting place, but then there's people who do focus their research on animals in captivity. There's also the opportunity to go work with some partners abroad that do conservation Mm -hmm. and wild. So it's very open-ended. So on your website, one of the descriptions of your work is you use art to communicate, to raise awareness about wildlife conservation. And I'm curious about how you made the connection between art as a preservation strategy. I think because I started in fashion and especially in children's fashion, you know, Like most of what we're doing is slapping an animal on a t-shirt or, you know, pajamas or whatever. And I just felt like there was like really a disconnect there, not even just a disconnect, like an opportunity there to use that as a way to like build kids interest in certain animals. And I feel like it's always, you know, we always put elephants on things. (laughs) We always put pandas. Like, why don't we try some other animals? And like, maybe, you know, this kid's going to be like, what is this? cat on my shirt oh maybe I want to learn about snow leopards or something a little less common you know I kind of see my job as like the very 
first intro into Mm -hmm. that and just try, especially I like trying to like raise awareness, lesser known animals. And then there are, you know, I draw a lot of really popular animals still, but just trying to put them in new contexts or add something that a child or, you know, a lot of times their parents don't know about. It's just, you know, very natural tie-in of my interests also. Is the snow leopard one of your favorite lesser known animals? I feel like that's not even that lesser known. It was just the first one that popped into my head. You know, we always, almost every season when I was designing kids clothes, we put a lion or a tiger on a shirt, you know? So there was one season that I think we did Nepal or I, you know, let's do a snow leopard instead. Just that example of something. So like the child who usually buys a lion shirt might buy the snow leopard shirt at that time. As part of that design work, did you take a deep dive into the biology of the animals? If I had known you could study ecology or zoology when I went to undergrad, I probably would have done that. But I just knew of, you know, general biology, and I didn't really want to learn more about cells than I already knew. (laughs) So I just did something else. So I always had that interest. So I was interested in that. And then the place where I worked the longest is called Tea Collection. And their mission is to make the foreign familiar for little citizens of the world. So a lot Mm -hmm. of it was going to other countries, mostly focusing on the culture, you know, learning from artisans and craft people, like what kind of work they made and just learning about what kind of food they, you know, but I was very focused, like, on top of that, I really wanted to tie in, you know, I was like, why are we in South America and putting a lion on a Mm -hmm. (laughs) t-shirt? Jaguar on a t-shirt, you know, so let's like also bring in this, the local ecosystems and things like that into the work. So did you study illustration in college? Like where did this art skill set come from? I started in computer science, which Mm -hmm. is very random. I have not programmed once since I graduated. And then I sort of was almost done with computer science by the time I was like, I just knew I didn't really want to do that. And I think part of the reason I was drawn to computer science is because I thought maybe I could get into animation. I was too scared to apply to art school, to be honest. I knew I was good at math. (laughs) So I was like, I can get into computer science school. So then I ended up staying at my university and doing an art degree after like the last year sort of overlapped. And then I stayed and did an art degree. And when did you make that switch from fashion to children's book illustration? Or is it a sort of both things are happening? When did you add the book illustration on? It was pretty early on when I was in fashion. I just like made a little side project of an animal alphabet book, but like all kind of obscure animals, which wasn't really out there yet. and. I made it and it wasn't, you know, self-publishing was still really expensive at that time. So I just like didn't really know what to do with this little book because I had enough people that were wanting it, but I had to sell it at like $45 a piece if I wanted Mm. to sell it, which seemed crazy. So I had enough interest in it, but I just didn't really know what to do with it. So then I found a local like continuing ed class at a university and took a children's book class In that class, I learned about the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, which is a really great organization for anyone interested in getting in children's books. I kind of entered that world. It just made so much sense. It like tied in so much of the stuff I was interested in. You know, it felt like a really good vehicle to 
marry all my interests. So I was doing that on the side for a really long time. And then I quit my day job in late 2016. And then devoted, fully devoted to children's illustration. Yeah, pretty much. It's not entirely book stuff. I do still do a lot of puzzles and games and stuff like that. I do a quilting fabric line and greeting cards, all all kinds of little side things to, you know, freelance life. (laughs) Yeah. I want to tell folks that when we were introduced to each other through a mutual person that we know, and in an email exchange with you, you described yourself as not a birdie bird person. <laughs> I love that phrase. I'd not heard it before. And I think it's it's great. And I'd love for you to talk about what that means to you. In my grad program, for example, I feel like, you know, half the people in that program were there because they just like love birds so much. And they're so passionate about birds and Even starting that grad program, I was like, birds, they're like the least interesting. (laughs) (laughs) These people, you know, I've traveled quite a bit, mostly to look at wildlife. And a lot of times, you know, you're in groups and I'm always like looking for the mammals and they're like, oh, look at this little fluttery thing far away. You can barely see, you know, it's like, oh, there was a gorilla over there. (laughs) So... So I I feel like I have started as a probably primarily mammal person. I, I mean, even it's interesting. I feel like even like amphibians and reptiles, I was like more interested in than birds. I think there's something about how quick and how far away birds are. I really like the sort of slow observation of a single animal, you know, and I think this like you get a glimpse for a second just didn't excite me in the same way. But you know, all these birders I've been around have slowly broken me down. <laughs> Still feel like I have a frenemy relationship with many birds. A frenemy. <laughs> in this frenemy relationship, is there a particular species that stands out to you? I think just in the urban bird uh, and probably my starting of my more front of me relationship. When I was living in San Francisco, I had these just pigeons who tormented me. They would sit in my mail slot with their butts in my mail slot and poop into my house. And they would like, the way I had to enter my house, I had to go up a flight of stairs. So like, they were not scared of me at all. And they would not fly away until my head got right to where they are. So they would like fly right at my head every day to enter my house. So, you know, they kind of harassed me for a while. And then when I first moved to the Jersey Shore, I had this cardinal that used to fly into the glass every day. And like, I didn't want him to fly in the glass because I didn't want him to hurt himself. But I also, it used to scare the crap out of me all the time. I was like, what was that? And it was this cardinal that just was fighting his reflection all the time. Literally for the first year, he did that all the time. It would still scare me. And we've slowly become friends. And I get sad if I don't see him for a few days. He stopped fighting his reflection. I don't know how or why. I've seen him with his mate and raise some little chicklets or whatever, little baby Cardinal, so I, you know, I feel like we're buds now. Okay. <laughs> we started this front of me. Yeah. Well, two very different species and two very different relationships with those species. 
One of the books that you've illustrated is a book about penguins, and the title is Edward and Annie, and they're rock hopper penguins. So for folks who are not familiar with the world of penguins, can you tell us a little bit about the species? Yes. So rockhoppers are one of the crested penguins and the, the ones with the little yellow feathers off their head. And the rockhoppers kind of have like these triangle fringes that go off their head. And some of them can get really wild. They're little yellow poofs or whatever you want to call them. And they live primarily on the islands, not Antarctica, the southern islands, you know, in the ocean around there. And they are called rockhoppers because they hop up rocks and whatever they move a lot by hopping so they're very cute the ones in the book that i illustrated are actually the rock hoppers from the shed aquarium in chicago who went kind of famous during the pandemic because when the shed aquarium was closed they let the rock hoppers go and explore the aquarium so they got to meet a beluga i know they met some tropical fish they got to go to the, I think it's the Field Museum, which is next door, and they got to see the Tyrannosaurus Rex. I think it was them that got to see that. They're not, that's not in the book. There's, they also have another species of penguin there. So I can't remember which got to see that, but you know, these little penguins got to explore in a way that is not usual. So that was really fun for people to watch and then fun to illustrate. In addition to those videos, sort of what other materials did you use to create the illustrative story for that book? You know, again, the pandemic was such a weird time. It would have been like so nice to just go to the aquarium and take the reference pictures I needed for that, but I couldn't really do that at that time. So I mostly was using Google Photos to look at rock hoppers. And I also looked at, you know, I once I feel like I got a sense of what made a rock hopper a rock hopper versus other penguins, I also could look at other penguins to kind of, you know, model if I couldn't find the exact pose I wanted on the internet, I could look at another penguin's pose and sort of mm. model the rock hopper into that. So I could use the sheds, the, you know, there's a lot of pictures from the shed, the sheds videos, you know, internet images. I got a handful of books from the library, but usually there was like one or two pictures of rock hoppers in them, not a lot of options. You know, even the documentaries might have been other crested penguins and not them. So, you know, I would watch a few of those, but mostly, yeah, internet just because of pandemic. I never actually got to see any rock hoppers in person before doing that book. Is that a sort of typical way of gathering your source material? You like to go in person and see the animals that you'll illustrate? Um, I mean, that's very much a luxury and does not happen for most things. But I think with other species, you know, with like lions, for example, there's so much reference material on the internet. And then a lot of the books that are like self-motivated from that I write and illustrate I likely have had reference material, like I've likely seen them in the wild or at least at a zoo. I like to gather as much information as possible, you know, like watch documentaries, like internet images, any books I can find on them, anything available <laughs> that I can get my hands on, I will. But yes, actually traveling to go see stuff in the wild is very much a luxury and children's books don't pay enough money to mm. be able to do that. <laughs> That's too bad because... I'm a big fan of children's books, and I collect the ones that have a nature focus, especially if they're related to trees or other plants. And I'm a visual learner, and my children are. And one of the ways that we learn about 
uh, non-human life is through picture books. And then it's sad to learn that there wouldn't be enough money for like research trips for illustrators. Yeah. I mean, if you want to do a research trip for a book that like very much has to be self-funded pretty much, unless some of the very famous illustrators can probably fund that based off their books, but certainly not the bulk of illustrators. And I think there is a little bit in the industry more so than there used to be a push to work with illustrators that might depending on the book to work with illustrators that might get a chance to observe these species in the wild you know what I mean like if someone was writing a Jersey Shore book I might be a good person to Mm. that one because I had the reference material like right available to me at this time of course there's a lot of animal books or tree books or whatever that include all different kinds of species from all over the world so that's not really feasible in that case but that is a good point so for illustrators whose home creatures are going to be the subject of the book. So working with those folks as opposed to maybe helicoptering in an illustrator for whom that's unfamiliar territory. I've been lucky that I've had so much travel experience, but there's such a difference of reading all you can read and watching all the documentaries and whatever, and then going there in person. You just like learn so much different stuff, a different level of appreciation for things, little things you may not notice. Otherwise, the book I did, I Am the Jungle, which is really more of a yoga book, but it's sort of takes place in Central African forests. And I had been to Uganda and Rwanda. So like that had, it focused on, you know, a main animal pretty much for each one, which that was easy to look up on the internet. But what I got from going there is that like all the background animals and the plants are might be a little more generic in there, but like, especially the background animals and like some of the setting, I would not have really known at the same level of detail what to put there if I hadn't been there. That makes sense. Thinking about birds again, and based on the sort of influence of your classmates do you think you'll pursue a bird project another bird book project whether you know zoo based or wild based right now I just installed a library art show at the Jersey Shore and it is mostly penguins and puffins but I did I wish I could show you but I don't have it (laughs) I did a little New Jersey penguins which was like all the black and white shore birds of shore and seabirds of New Jersey So, I mean, I'm definitely incorporating more birds into my work and that a lot of the stuff from that penguin art show, penguin and puffin art show is going to be part of my next fabric collection. And like a lot of my books and my games and my projects are usually there's some sort of theme and with a bunch of different animals in it. So there's usually always a handful of birds in every project. I'm trying to think I like really besides the penguin book, I think I haven't really done a book that focuses on one species only. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my next book cover, which no one has seen yet, does have birds on the cover. Oh, that's exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Any species in particular that you can share? I don't know if I'm allowed to share yet, actually. I might keep that secret for now. I'm trying to think there's at least two birds in that book Hmm. that I can think of right now. There might be more. Yeah, there's definitely two. I want to ask you one final question, and it would be advice for 
someone who's interested in biology, interested in art, what would you tell that person? Like what strategies, advice would you offer to that person about the pursuit of both those things together? I think there's definitely more opportunities than there used to be because I think in a way that, you know, the world is so connected now, you can sort of tailor your career to what you want it to be. School-wise, I would think like if you're going to college, it would probably make sense to focus more on biology because you can, you really can learn art anywhere. You just have to be committed to it, which is I think the thing that you get the most out of art school is you're sort of forced to make work, which is great because it can be hard to do on your own. But there's also a lot of schools that offer both of those options. So that is also a possibility to try and find schools that have like, I know my school had, you could do combo degrees where it was like part biology and part art, or you can Mm. do a major and a minor or something like that. So school-wise, I think there's like options. And I mean, I don't know. I follow, I feel like it was uh, Steve Jobs' (laughs) advice of like, when he said that, I was like, oh, that's what I do. And now I feel justified in doing it of not thinking about too much what the path is and just following your following your passion at the time. And I think eventually you'll get to the right spot. So I think just being open-minded and trying new things and following what excites you. And then eventually you'll find how to do something to tie those together. You might not make money with it though. Mm. (laughs) Nothing I I want to do makes a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe there can only be one Steve Jobs. (laughs) (laughs) You know, passion projects and cash don't (laughs) It's very sad to me that I feel like the things that are most important to the world are not the things that you get paid to do. Mm. So then I do have one more question and it dovetail with what you just said, going back to sort of the start of the conversation about the work you're doing and using it as a tool to raise awareness about wildlife and wildlife conservation. What is your, I suppose, given where we are now in the world with biodiversity loss and climate change and the many other crises that are underway, what is your perspective or approach to wildlife conservation? Like, where are you in terms of how you feel, like your hope? I think that is something that very much changed during the pandemic. And I think the combination of being in grad school during the pandemic, I've always been like a little bit of a nomad where I didn't really want to settle anywhere. And I love to travel and, you know, renting apartments or whatever. So for the first time, I was like in one place and sort of stuck here and had the ability to garden, (laughs) I think. And when I started like really focusing on native plants and being in the same place every day and seeing just firsthand how little changes could make a difference. I felt like that was really empowering because I think it's really easy with all the things going on to feel like we have no control over helping these things. Like it's, you have to change policies in all these people's minds and like, how are we going to fight fossil fuels or what? Like, you know, it's very hard to feel like you have a sense of control. How can I fight deforestation in Madagascar, like that seems really 
overwhelming. So, you know, I planted my first milkweed. And when two weeks later, I saw monarch caterpillars, like that was so satisfying. And, you know, now I've been leaving the leaves and I see more lightning bugs, which I hadn't seen since I moved Mm -hmm. here. And then I planted more plants for caterpillars. What really started me down this route actually is partially connected to the birds is I live in an area that was very much affected by Sandy. So a lot of these lots were empty and kind of converting back to just like weedy dune areas and goldenrod seaside goldenrod was only in these lots because everyone pulls it like it's a weed and I just noticed how many butterflies and birds which I didn't know at the time but were little kinglets just loved this goldenrod and I was like why is this nowhere else besides these empty lots and in some like street corner like you know going out of the street. So I started learning about goldenrod and then I learned about other native plants. So I've been trying to like basically restore my habitat just in my own little yard and I can see the changes, you know, so I think that local connection is something I hadn't had before. And I feel like that is really satisfying to see anyone, even if you have a little balcony, you can put a plant on your balcony, right? And to see that firsthand, I think is really a good way to still have hope. I connected that. I was in Madagascar pretty, I mean, not that recently anymore, (laughs) in late 2018. And they were talking a lot about how important building forest corridors were there. And I always like knew about that in terms of like tropical rainforests. I like thought about forest corridors or like more you know, something different than the Jersey Shore, you know, as far as corridors or whatever. But when I could think about my own garden as like a corridor for these birds and these butterflies that are Mm -hmm. migrating, that was so empowering. I was like, oh, I can do this same idea in my own yard. So that connection and being able to see that firsthand, I think has helped me have hope. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yes, Seaside Goldenrod is amazing. And you're seeing that connection between plants and insects and birds, which is a really critical triad relationship. Especially now that I'm like seaside goldenrod has become one of my species. I'm always like looking at it more closely. And I also got very into iNaturalist during the pandemic. (laughs) Probably lost track, but I think I'm up to like 50 species that I have observed on seaside goldenrod. Just on my like my little block, (laughs) you know, it's crazy. A reader can only hope that there will be a monarch seaside goldenrod, kinglet. (laughs) (laughs) All just to stress, I'm a slow artist to begin with. And children's books take a really long time to make. So they're in progress. (laughs) 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 I can't promise when they'll be out. I always say for my friends, I'm like, it takes longer to make a book for babies than it takes to make a baby. (laughs) 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 But yes, I would love to do something, especially about how important native plants are and how they can build an ecosystem and how almost everyone has the ability to help with that in some way. Well, you've just beautifully sort of talked us through this sort of importance of scale. And so while we might not be able as an individual to make ready change to slow deforestation in Madagascar, for example, many of us can have a plant that can be a resource for some other creature. And I think that's a really great spot of hope. And it's something very tangible. And I'm excited to have had this opportunity to talk to you. And I look forward to 
your books to come. Well, thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Your Bird Story. Like, share, subscribe, and we'll see you back here next month.